0: Hey guys, it's Chris. I made a mistake and my pre-show audio is not up to my expectations. It's a short segment. The interview with Mike Burrows is awesome. Back to regular, super high quality. This is Jake's fault. We can blame it on him. He's not here to defend himself, so we can do that. Anyway, enjoy the show and enjoy the interview with Mike Burroughs. Always great to have him on. Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest, I'm Chris and I'm Jake and dude, like the level of excitement I have right now for uh, two things, two excitement levels, two, okay. one, yes. Mike Burrows is coming on the podcast and I'm, I'm excited, excited for this. to hear all about this Ferrari and the journey yes. out to Australia with it. We, we had him on a long time ago when he first started the concept of this idea and yep. everybody was like, dude. What the bleep <laughs> are you doing cutting a up the Honda Ferrari? motor? <laughs> what are you doing? It's sacrilege. And, and there were so many people that didn't believe. If you looked at the comments on Reddit, you looked at the yeah. comments on, on the YouTubes. It was uh, there was there was little faith from people that didn't know Mike. But if you sure. know Mike from oh, yeah. his interviews here his, on the podcast and from following works, Looking at his other projects like the man is going to get shit of past done. projects. Yes, he's gonna get shit done, and he far exceeded any. Like I didn't really have an expectation. I've just been kind of along for the ride. You know, you yeah. ever go on a roller coaster? You don't sit there going, "Hmm, I wonder what the expectation for this roller coaster is going to be. How am I going to feel during this roller coaster?" <laughs> you just kind of, you just kind of go and enjoy the roller coaster, right? Sure. You just enjoy the thing. Enjoy. So, is that what that's, this is? This was a roller coaster ride. Me. Okay, that's what this was for me as a, as as a dude that's just hanging out and watching. So it was a, it was a wonderful roller coaster ride. I feel like we've gone – as an observer, I feel it's like, er, you know, you're, you're having a lot of fun and the thing comes to coast. So you're about to get off the roller coaster and it hits the brakes and you get off. And then you kind of go, should we go on it again?
1: <laughs> Wait, okay. What is – in this analogy, what is doing it again? What is What is getting on it again?
0: I think we're going to have to ask Mike that throughout the course of this episode. We're going to find out where things are going from here. What's right. next? What he's building? I know that um, <laughs> we talked a little bit at the beginning of this episode about him selling his truck, like his uh, over- overlanding enormous monster right. truck, which yeah. instantly sold. So if you're listening to this episode and you hear us talk about him selling his truck, too it's late. too late. You've you've missed it. <laughs> you're, you're, you're too late. All right. Before we get into our interview with Mike and talk all things Ferrari, Australia, time attack, what have you got for us? Yeah, Mr. let's Jacob, take a what's minute. What's your middle name?
1: What's your middle name? I have two. Daniel McDonald
0: and Jacob, Solberg. Daniel, McDonald, Solberg. What yeah. have you got for us? Dude, <laughs> oh, I forgot to say the second thing I'm excited for. Oh, Number that two. was only one. Okay, one. Yeah, two. Now people, like, they hit the little 30-second thing to, like, skip yeah. the ads. Oh, they and they're going to they miss this. They're going to miss See? this. That's why you never do that. You never do that. Naughty. If you did that, you're very naughty. <laughs> the end of this week, which uh-huh. this episode comes out on Wednesday, on okay. Saturday morning, Yes. I'm essentially driving to the rally.
1: Yeah. More or less, right? People would be like, wait a minute, isn't that in mid-October? Aren't we a little ahead of the game here, Chris? We are a little
0: ahead of the game. I'm heading out to shoot Sport. Right. Yeah. So I got to drive all the way to California and then drive my car up to Portland, leave it there, fly home, help you guys with whatever shit that I I put off by not being here, which I feel (laughs) obscenely (laughs) guilty about that I'm leaving you guys. But I'm, unfortunately, I'm too poor to be able to turn down work from Porsche to do. Yeah, transport. no, well, I I think that's fine. I, you should. I be can't do it. it. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm excited about all of this. I'm stressed. I'm super stressed about like everything that's going on. Oh yeah, absolutely. but like I feel like I I feel Exciting like a rubber band. Stress. Gun. I okay, like. You what... know, you, do you ever have a rubber band gun? <laughs> okay. Yes. You know which well, how did do, do how does how is that what you feel like? Did, uh, what kind of rubber band gun did you have, Jake? I don't even
1: remember. It was wood. It had a rubber band. You know, did you know, make your rubber wheel band wheel gun? a little wheel with the trigger.
0: I don't think so. Okay, so my rubber band gun, uh-huh. I made all by myself. Uh-huh. It was a piece of wood, like a stick, with a, a nail in the end. And then it had a clothespin nailed oh, to the other sure. end. Yep. Okay. And you And I would put the rubber band, stretch it all the way back, and you'd open the clothespin, and you're like, because mm, you're like, seven so you've got this rubber band and you've got it up against your leg and you're pulling and you're trying to like get this thing into the clothespin and you get a, that's what i feel like right now i feel like i'm getting pulled back towards the clothespin i'm i'm just i uh, it's like all what that, happens that,
1: when you get fired like what what happens when you open the clothespin
0: oh everything all hell breaks loose it's gonna be amazing all that all that potential energy turns into kinetic energy and, okay, and, it's, yeah. and it's rally time that like okay I get it. Day zero, like registration for day zero, that's gonna be like my thumb is on the little clothespin. Yep. And then it then it's like
1: it's just and then that morning, clutch drop first gear as you're heading out, that's 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 hitting the clothespin. That's it. Trigger done. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man. That's ridiculous. Your analogies, I feel like, keep getting more and more ridiculous.
0: That's not a ridiculous analogy at all. We're talking about we're talking about stressing something adding potential (laughs) energy to it, and then releasing Uh it. That is Uh the best analogy I've ever come up with that didn't involve a penis.
1: That's probably true because usually they are
0: obscene. Analogies. I, I, I'm trying to steer clear of the obscene analogies. I like your that. Sake. That's
1: good. Yeah. I appreciate that, and our listeners more. Yeah, you realize that's what I'm more concerned about.
0: Oh, you're cons- you're a prude, so it, it's fine.
1: That's not entirely true. You, yeah. All right, we, we'll leave that there. Let's not go any further <laughs> on that train of thought. You know all what right, we should what talk about though? Before we get going, is CSF cooling because they've always been at the forefront of quality products. You know where I heard price. CSF cooling? What did you hear about them? And obviously, if you listen to the episode, I've heard, which you should have, but I've heard the, that man. they are an official partner
0: of the Overcast they Rally. They're oh, an yeah. official partner of the rally, official partner of uh, the podcast now, with some, uh, some, some action going on here with the episode and this. But the first time I ever really, I mean, I'd seen it, but the first time I ever really was like, oh, CSF Cooling was when I was on the phone with Mike, being like, I was asking him, where is this place? Because SEMA is, like, imagine 75 football fields yeah. filled with, like, all kinds the of boots. stuff. Yeah. And they're all, like, it doesn't make sense. Like, nothing's <laughs> laid out. It's all these buildings. I think it's supposed to. I don't know if you're supposed to get lost or what. It's almost worse okay. than the, the casinos in Vegas being right. at SEMA. Where, yeah, where you're not supposed to be able to get out. Where you're not supposed yet. to leave. Where you just wander and go, where the hell am I? Have you experienced yeah. that when you're in a casino? I mean, you I guess I have to assume some not because you're lost. Yeah. <laughs> well you can't see over the slot machines anyway
1: i know it's so really you're it doesn't matter straight. where i am i could be next to the door and i don't even know chris <laughs> <laughs> I, gotta stop. I gotta stop anyway you i really saw that
0: was the first time i saw csf was mike's ferrari in its completed state so i was exposed oh, right. to csf and seeing the Ferrari for the first time because it was at in their the booth. same time yeah
1: yeah at the csf
0: absolutely booth. awesome oh, yeah.
1: yeah well obviously high quality products if Mike is using them on the Ferrari and fair price. They have a huge history, a rich history stretching over decades and generations, and they provide the best high performance and OEM plus cooling systems on the market today. Chris, quit clackling. What? What am I doing? That was loud. Your keyboard clackling. I'm sorry. I bought a a new keyboard that's supposed to be silent. That is the opposite of silent. Is it? Yeah, it's very loud. Yeah, extremely loud. Like, oh, you're going to have to do that. No. Okay. All right. CSF offers over 3,000 different cooling applications for most popular makes and models on the road today. From classic copper brass radiators for Land Cruisers, Jeeps, and Datsuns, to DaVinci 80s, Mercedes, BMW, Audi, and, of course, Porsche platforms, all the way up to new vehicles. Check out their expanding hey, classic series Rensport, line.
0: What? If you're going to be at Rensport, go yeah. see CSF.
1: They're yeah. they're, they're going to be there. stuff
0: that they're releasing. I know some people yep. are going to be listening to this on their way to RenSport. hang it. Out. You know Go what they're probably going to have there?
1: Are they going to have that? their new offering for the air cooled 911? I think they might. It'd be very cool. So check them out. Regardless, CSFrace.com or on social. Yeah, I heard it again. Sorry. Also, make sure to catch CSF what at RenSport, like you were talking about later this month, and of course they'll be on the Overcrest Rally next month. Nothing to add there. No, no, no witty retort. No, the, clickety-clacking? no witty retort. No clickety
0: clacking. No clickety clacking.
1: Okay, good. Because we also have to talk about our friends over at Petrol Box, which is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiasts. Each month, they carefully include items, including what tools, detailing, detailing supplies, supplies, apparel, t-shirts, garage gear, stickers, enamel pins, collectibles. They they put it right there in a box, Chris. And yes, they, they do. it ends up on your doorstep. How does this happen? It's amazing. Every month. Truly. Truly. It is. It's the latest and greatest gear in the automotive industry. It makes an amazing gift. I look forward to it every time I get it in the mailbox or on the doorstep. Does yours okay, does yours go on the doorstep or in the mailbox? Because I don't I feel know like, because
0: my wife steals it, like I've told you a million times.
1: Yeah, but I feel like it's it's different each time, which again just adds to the Excitement of not knowing—it's—it's it's a surprise every time. So check them out at mypetrolbox.com. There's two, there's two different levels to choose from: twenty bucks a month for the Petrolbox Basic, Petrolbox Premium gets you even more gear for thirty nine ninety five a month. Check them out, guys. What are you waiting for?
0: Check them out. Check them out. And Jake, what? Check out this interview with Mike Burrows. All right, let's do it. Mr. Mike Burroughs, thanks for coming to hang out again, man.
2: Thank you for having me yet again. I appreciate it.
0: Fresh back from the Outback from Australia. Did they have a my first question is, is there an outback steakhouse in Sydney?
2: Astoundingly there is. Uh we what? Were suggested, there actually is. We were suggested by Aussies that Uh, they should take us out to Outback for one of the evenings, not even as a joke. We thought it was a joke at first. They were like, oh yeah, let's go get steaks. We'll go to Outback Steakhouse tonight. And we were like, oh yeah, good one. And then it was like, they were like, yeah, no, it'll be great. And so I don't know what the vibe of it is there. If it's like self-referential humor or if... Outback Steakhouse, there is this, like, high-tier, you know, steakhouse versus <laughs> here, it's this caricature of Australia. Uh, but it does exist there. Uh, I did not go, though. We didn't wind up going.
0: Yeah, that, that it doesn't sound super exciting. Okay, so when I was thinking about what we want to talk about today, I've got this post up on my phone <laughs> right now. Which this is, is, your, which is your truck. Which is your truck for sale. And this is, I think this is meaningful. And uh, the reason I, I'm going to read the little thing says, I'm entertaining the idea of selling this thing, which is your 06 F250. Uh, so here's a preemptive feeler for anyone that wants a shot at it before I could actually list it, blah, blah, blah. This is so I can get the Ferrari out on track more for 2024. And when I saw this and I saw how much, I know how much you enjoy, you know, going out into the wilderness with your truck. And then I saw it's so you can take the Ferrari out on track more. Is this, I mean, is this a shift in you personally what you love are you are you moving on from trucks to track or what's happening here
2: no so overall i mean i still need a truck in order to do not only truck things with respect to i've got to tow the ferrari it's not a street car so i've got to have a way to get it to tracks whether it's local tracks here in california or if i want to take the thing down to coda in texas uh, for Super Lap in March, up to the Ridge in Washington, or anywhere else. I need a way to get this car moved around the country effectively. Yep. Um, so there still has to be a truck in the picture, but I have a lot of money tied up into this truck, and it's also probably a bit too focused on being uh, this incredible off-road rig, and I just don't utilize that aspect of it enough. I wish I did. I wish I had more time to go out, right. let's say it, you know, every other weekend or at least once a month and go out and really rip on it and, you know, hit the trails and what have you. And I just, I realistically go out for one or two lengthy trips a year. We try to do, you know, a one to two week trip every summer, kind of with our Stanceworks off-road group. And then usually something over Thanksgiving or Christmas, I go out, I enjoy it. It's important to me to not give those up, but I'm realizing I also don't need, uh, you know, a truck that's on 40s. <laughs> the thing is long travel out of control. suspension. It's out um, of control. I mean, this thing is, we'll call it a jack of all trades because it is one. Um, I mean, the does car it tow leads, well? I mean, I think you, you used it, it does, to tow to Vegas, right? It does tow well. I mean, I have towed the car uh, up to Sacramento several times at this point, once to go up there for the roll cage, another to drop it off for shipping to Australia. Uh, I have driven the c- truck with a trailer behind it. All over Southern California, you know three, four hours away, every time whatever track I'm going to, it tows wonderfully, it does an awesome job. It is an absolute work absolute workhorse. it is a powerhouse. Uh, but I think it might be spread a little thin in terms of trying to do everything. It I what I know I need is something that anyone any any of my friends or my girlfriend can yeah. get behind the wheel of and tow it or get it to wherever it needs to be without headache. And right now, I mean, it's a, I don't want to call it high strung. It's not, it hasn't been unreliable at all, but I mean, that motor is built. It makes a ton of power. If I were to just throw the keys to a friend and say, Hey, can you tow this, you know, trailer, you know, let's say up the coast for me while I knock this other thing out. uh, If they're not paying attention to things like EGTs and whatnot, then who knows what could happen? It's, you know, it's, 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 you have to be focused on the experience of that truck. And I want to dumb that process down. Get some money in my pocket. Like I said, I've got a ton of money tied up in this thing. Yeah,
0: I mean, uh, you can huge. split that thing basically up. You can you can sell it. You can get a much cheaper off road experience just to tool around in, which I know will explode into being exactly what this is over time, anyway. And then you can get like a like a tow rig of some sort that. Because if you if you were like, hey Chris, I need you to tow. I need you to go pick up my trailer. And I got into this thing. I'd be like, oh my god, driving around L.A. in this. The thing is m- massive. It is the biggest truck I have ever been around. It is absolutely huge.
2: <laughs> it is It is a big one. And, and in that same note, I mean, at this point, it's built to have 40s on it. It's been geared for 40s. The fenders are cut for 40s. And 40s are not meant for towing. They really right. are not. I've had several friends in the tire business look at that and say, hey, eh, you probably should not do that. And so it's only a matter of time before I have an issue, right. and I don't want that, especially with my pride and joy in the trailer behind me, so on and so forth. Okay. It's just I'm trying to do too much with one truck. I need to dumb the process down. I built something that... While it's incredible as an off-road truck and realistically even as a daily driver, I drive that thing every day, uh, it's not suited to one of the important tasks that I want to focus on in the year to come, which is getting that Ferrari yep. to other tracks, getting out there, enjoying it, and, like I said, putting some extra money in my pocket will be valuable because it's an expensive car to run.
0: Yeah, so when I think of Mike on track, you know, I've, I've known you for a long time. So when I, when I go back to the inception of knowing you, I didn't ever think this is the the path that you would take. And I look back to maybe where it started with like maybe taking the E30 M3 to the track. Is that where this, did you have like a light bulb pop on when you were out there on the track driving that car? When did this kind of start?
2: Uh, It started with, uh, so I had that Group A E28 that you remember. Yep. When we uh, we did our little, uh, you know, gallivanting around Southern California. Um, That car was built as a tribute to a, victorious touring car that most car guys are unaware of, even BMW guys. You know me, I love E28s. I said, I want to tell the story of the fact that this car was campaigned by BMW and it won the European Touring Car Championship in the one year that it was raced. In building that car, I said, well, if I'm going to build the race car, I want to get out there and drive it. And so that was my introduction to track driving, save for a few experiences way back in the day in my E36. And with that, I began to kind of fall in love with it. I said, this is a ton of fun. I want to do this some more. I sold that Model A. <laughs> I sold Model A. I sold, Uh-oh. I sold- <laughs> Uh-oh. Freudian slip. I, I'm trying to sell the Model A if anybody wants it, by the way. Uh, I sold that E28, and it wasn't long after that I bought the E30 M3. When it popped up for a deal, a guy that I know had the car sitting in his shop. He called me up and said, hey, I have a car you might be interested in. What do you think about an E30 M3 race car? And I said, okay, yes, I'll be right there. <laughs> so I bought the E30. It was a former CCA club race car. It was built as a race car, driven as a race car for years and years, and then sat for, I don't know, 15. Until Did I got people take those coming. cars?
0: Did they leave the dealership and make race cars out of them? Was that common back then?
2: I don't know that it was common. This one wasn't a dealership race car. It was turned into a race car sometime in the 90s. Uh, it was a gray market import. I don't know why it was brought over from Europe. It was brought into Washington. Uh, and then as soon as it got here, it was turned into a race car and campaigned, I believe in D mod for BMW CCA club racing.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha.
2: Um, but I drove that that, car.
0: When you went to the track in that car, is, is that when the light bulb turned on?
2: I don't know that that's like necessarily when the light bulb turned on. I think it was more of a progressive thing. That car was really capable. It was really fast. I'm still bummed I didn't get to extract everything out of it. I mean, I still have so much growing to do as a driver before I could say I reached the potential of that car. But I did really push on it. I leaned on it hard, and I know I was going quick in it. Um, And I think getting more and more track experience, getting out there and driving more and more, being around friends that were at the track every weekend, and more importantly, building these time-attack competition cars... That made me say, "Well, I kind of want to do that too." I don't personally have a huge interest in going wheel to wheel or door to door racing. I mean, I think that that is cool and I would love the opportunity to do it, but I'm I don't see myself as the guy who would make, you know, the monumental investment to build a car that would be competitive in something like that where I'm jockeying for position on track. That scares track.
0: me too, man. It's, uh, just being around it's ter- it just sounds terrifying.
2: Well and it's a it's a rich man's sport in that you have to be willing to write the car off and I put too much work and time and money into my projects because they yeah. are passion projects to do that. Maybe something well, about
0: Forza too like you're driving on the track and you're you're racing with everybody and the little exclamation point comes on if you touch another car and then your lap doesn't doesn't count anymore. It's not like that in real life. There's no like little exclamation point that comes on. It costs no. a <laughs> fucking ton of money when you mess up.
2: Yeah, so I don't know that I'll do that, but the concept of time attack racing where it's, hey, you can still compete, you can still have that competitive drive, and it's so centric to being a builder. It's about building a competitive car within a rule set, not a spec series where it really comes more down to the driver uh, and you know maybe some nuances in building a car that can squeeze through those rules. I said, this seems like something I could really get into. And I'm watching friends like Amir Benatu build that NSX and saying, man, I love the way that these cars look. I love the way that they are competing with each other, but they're not having to put necessarily the car on the line to do it. It's right up my alley. So I said, at some point, I'm going to do this too. And that's kind of where the Ferrari came into play.
0: So when I think of, uh, when I watch your YouTube channel and I've watched you grow, it seems like you're in a constant battle with yourself to learn and be better do you think that 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 notion comes into the the driving aspect you say that you're you're never did extract the most out of that e30 and honestly i think that there's always when you're tra- doing any track stuff or you're competing with yourself against time there's always improvement to be made do you think that's part of it for you
2: uh i mean i'm sure in some capacity yeah i mean i want to be better at everything i do and i think that there's multiple sides to that it's always important to remind yourself you'll never be you'll never be the best at something there's always going to be somebody better than you so don't you know get an ego about it Um, but I also embrace the mindset of if somebody else can do something that means I can learn to do it too doesn't mean as well but I can learn to do it and so I try to not put limits on myself in terms of what I can do or what I can learn what skill sets I have Um, I don't see myself as a race car driver and I don't know that I'd ever call myself a race car driver but I still want to learn to do it, to get better at it, to get faster, improve my own driving, just like I want to get to be a better fabricator and build better vehicles here in the shop.
0: When you got the Ferrari, did you know that this was going to be the trajectory? I mean, it, is, it seems like, from my perspective, it's like you got the Ferrari, you're like, hey, I'm going to make a time attack car. And then everything just like spiraled out of control. And all of a sudden you're in Australia and Haltech's like, come on over, let's do this. And I mean, it just seems like this wild ride over the last few years from just like an inception of an idea. of I thought like, oh, Mike's going to take this thing to Sonoma and like and track it around a little bit and it'll be fun. And now it's just insane.
2: The project has de- has definitely spiraled, <laughs> spiraled. There's no doubt about that. Um, when I started this, the idea was, oh, I want it to be a streetcar that I can take time attack racing. And it is unquestionably not a streetcar anymore. In no way could it really be driven on the street other than just for the sake of doing it. I mean, I'm sure at some point I will drive it to a cars and coffee or maybe one of our period correct meets or who knows what, but that will be an endeavor. It will be, um, a process to do. It's not a streetcar anymore. I have made every sacrifice along the way when it came to those forks in the road that you get to in a project. And anytime it was kind of sitting at, all right, do I preserve street carness or do I really make the best car that I can for what I want to do with it? And I would pivot and go with the latter. I want a car that is, uh, you know, as rigid as possible. So I said, "Eh, screw it. Let's put the cage in there. Let's make it as safe as possible. Let's make it the best car that I can within what I'm trying to do. Now, I haven't built the car to maximize to any specific rule set. The car falls within the limited class uh, for a Global Time Attack, which is our stateside stuff here, and then for World Time Attack in Australia, it felt... What does that up. mean? What is
0: Limited Class? What is that?
2: It's it's just the title for the class itself. So you have uh, a handful of classes. You've got Enthusiast Class, which would be at the very bottom, which is things like the car has to have its full interior, full carpet, dash, seats, everything. It Nothing. can't have a swapped engine, I don't think. I think it's got to be the original driveline. I don't even know if you can have forced induction. You might be able to. I haven't really read those rule books, but things like Lexan are not allowed. You have a lot of limits on the amount of arrow you can run. It's really meant to be uh, more of like you drive this car to the track, you race it, you drive it home type of thing.
0: Kind of like the original concept of what we thought maybe the Ferrari would be.
2: Yeah, and... Uh, But even one step beyond that, you have street class, which is still meant to be a street car. It has to retain a lot of those same things. You get a bit more of an aero allowance. You can swap engines within the same make of your car. So let's say if my car were an NSX and I wanted to take that V6 out, I could put a K-series into it because it's still a Honda engine. The problem is, is you can't swap engines from a different make into your car within the street class. So immediately, my car is not allowed in street or enthusiast. Minimum class it can be in is limited. And limited, although it has the name limited, is pretty close to no limits. I mean, you can do most anything you want that most car guys would be capable of. I mean, you can go, there's no power ceiling. The aero limitations are pretty mild. You can, I think it's like extend past the sides of the car by... I don't know, probably a foot with your wing (laughs) splitter. Uh, You can clear the roof line with your wing by something like eight inches. I mean, like a lot of these cars that you see that are pretty gnarly are limited class cars. And then you have unlimited, which is pretty much, hey, as long as it's a production based car, do whatever you want. And then at the very top, you have pro comp. There's not many competitors there, but that's where you'd find something like Riley Stairs Trans Am where it is. This is a full tube chassis car. It's basically, hey, if it's safe, you can run it in this class. As long as it meets safety regulations, go out, compete in it, and it's a run what you brung, go full tilt. This is the true... What's
0: the most competitive class, do you think?
2: They're all really competitive. I mean, even down in the street class, you're going to have guys like Amir running that NSX, which is a blisteringly fast car. I mean, a really and truly fast car. And there are guys competing with him four times... At every track he goes to. I mean, he's not wiping the floor with everybody. He does on occasion. Don't get me wrong. He's an incredibly fast driver. But, um, you know, he's not in a field of his own out there. You get up into the limited class or even unlimited and you start having these cars that are, you know, let's say Ferris, who just went to Australia with me, uh, competing in his Corvette, twin turbo, big arrow package. He went and competed in what's called the Pro-Am class at World Time Attack. And he won, I mean, to his credit, incredible showing. But, I mean, these are really competitive cars that can hold their own in international competition uh, against any, you know, level of competition you want to throw at them. So it's, when my car is in the limited class, it's at the very bottom limitations of what put it in there. If I really wanted it to be a competitive car in that class, I've got a lot of work to do. There's going to be a lot of changes that need to be made because... I'm in the limited class, but I'm not a competitive limited class car, if that makes sense.
0: So you didn't really build the... When you started, Do you hamstring yourself by some of the things you did? Like, okay, now I'm in this class. Shit. What am I going to do? I got to do all this other stuff now to make it work? Or,
2: um, I mean, sometimes there's definitely decisions that were made where it's like, well, I'm in the limited class. If I do X, Y, or Z, it would push me even further out of that class, so I don't want to do that. Yep. But as a whole, I mean... I'm in limited class stateside, so that's where I have to be. I can't, unless I want to go put a Ferrari engine back in the car, that's just where the car is going to be. So you can run things like a sequential gearbox in limited class, but I can't, for example, have air shifting, paddle shifters on the car without moving up to unlimited. So there are decisions to make like that where it's like I could make the car a lot faster, and I'm still entertaining the idea of, of... going air shifted on that transmission one to preserve it. And two, because I think that sounds like a ton of fun and it sounds pretty cool. And I like cool things, but it would put me in the unlimited class justification for that would be, Hey, if I'm going to be slow and in limited, why not just be slow and unlimited? doesn't really (laughs) matter. But, uh, to kind of answer the question, ultimately i just decided i want to build the car that i want to build the car that i think is cool the car that is appealing that also fits within my budget i don't have an unlimited budget people see a ferrari badge and think unlimited price tag but that's not the case um so i'm building the car that i can afford to build the car that i can afford to run importantly something that i can get out there and actually use and not have to you know break the bank every time i want to just fire the thing up like rusty was um and it's just going to put me where i am and I promised myself that if if the car proved to be at least somewhat competitive, that I would continue to develop it and maybe push it more towards the limit of, let's say, the limited class. The showing in Australia told me that, like, hey, this car could actually work. I mean, I was out there. I I wasn't in last place, but I was far from first place. But I've driven the car at this point three times, literally three times. So given that and given that i'd never even driven on that track i don't know the limits of my own car it still did wonderfully well uh i want to pursue making it faster and maybe in the coming months or years i'll push it closer to that limited class ceiling to see what it can do but i've, I've got a long way to go before it's there
0: did uh did taking it on the track in that vein did taking it on the track scare you at all does is that does it get scary that car i mean what what is it like to drive it i mean you're what, how did you have the power set up when you were there? Because like, wh- I know you nope. said that it's good for 1,000 horsepower, but...
2: So it is. Uh, the engine is built to hold 1,200 brake horsepower. Uh, we have not hit that because I don't run the car on a fuel with enough octane to do that. So if we wanted to do that, it needs to be on probably E85 uh, or like an alcohol-based fuel. Um, or I would need to run it on something like C16, a really high-octane uh, race fuel. We run the car on 110 for the express purpose of the fact that I can get 110 at all of the Southern California racetracks. I don't have to take my fuel with me. And that's yep. appealing. I don't want to lug around a 55-gallon drum of fuel everywhere I go for a ton of reasons. Yeah. So running it on 110, we are, I mean, that is a high-octane fuel, don't get me wrong, but we are limited in terms of, I don't want to lean on the motor too hard. I want this engine to last a long time. I don't want to you know, make too many demands. So we run the car on what we call low boost. That's 13 to 14 PSI, which makes on the dyno about 640 horsepower at the wheels.
0: Okay. So this thing sounds, and what does it weigh again? I know you know exactly uh, what it weighs.
2: With me in the car, ready to go. It's just shy of 2,700 pounds.
0: Okay. That's extremely light for that kind of power. Now, is it, that sounds like it would be terrifying to try and find where the limits are on a car that let's face it you're still a guy that built the car by yourself. You're not a I wouldn't consider you like a you're not like some dude from Audi that's an engineer that's no, building I'm, cars, you know. So you're just you're just a guy, which I I'm just a guy too and we're all just guys. Are you scared going out there and pushing this thing? Or are you thinking about man, I really hope that weld on that heim joint holds up like It's got to be in the back of your mind.
2: That I think is the hardest part of any of it. I iterate all the time in my episodes. I'm not a professional. And it's interesting because I think a lot of people maybe see me as one just by virtue of the fact that I'm there doing the things, so to speak. But I'm not a professional. I'm just a guy. I have no professional training whatsoever in anything that I do. I went to school for photography and dropped out. So we're, we're <laughs> not talking about somebody classically trained to do any of this. I just am eager to learn and absorb as much knowledge as I can and then go out there and try it. And I'm not afraid to fail. That's the other key component here. With that said, I, I'm afraid to fail from a financial standpoint. I can't afford to write the car off. Uh, and there is always that fear of, you know, will my control arm mount that I welded break off the car? Do I know what I'm doing? Nobody taught me to TIG weld other than, you know, I mean, I, I was fortunate to have Riley to, to ask questions from and kind of learn some of the basics, but then I dove in and just kind of am a self-taught guy. What if I missed some key component to this? What if I don't know what I'm doing? Uh, There's a lot of imposter syndrome that sets in when you have a project like this and you're a guy like me. So getting it out on track that first time, I I was putting around Buttonwillow with this fear of every lap I'm going a little bit faster, getting closer to that edge, but again, what if a weld on a control arm breaks and then snaps and the car sends me into a wall? What if I load the car up incorrectly and, you know, something fails? Or what if my suspension geometry that I designed, what if I'm an idiot and have no idea what I'm doing, (laughs) and it turns out that I'm going to get nowhere close to what I thought was the limit of traction, and all of a sudden traction snaps loose because it, you know, gains way too much camber under travel and acceleration, and all of a sudden when I get on throttle coming out of a turn, the car loops and sends me into a wall. I mean, there are so many possibilities And all of them are stressful, and that means working my way up towards the car's limit and my limit slowly but surely, finding that level of comfort because if I overdrive the car and I'm not comfortable with what I'm doing or what the car is doing, that's a recipe for disaster. Um, Do you have
0: any, like, uh, is there any fear of your ego too? Like, hey, I built this car, I get on track, this thing does horrible. I mean, how does that affect, you know... You're Because you're very public with everything that you do, the mistakes you've made, everything. It's all there. It's all out there, which I think is awesome. But at the same time, if the car goes out there and does poorly, that sucks.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, uh, you know, like a pride and ego aspect to it. I don't want to go out there and embarrass myself. I had joked about, oh, I don't want to be last place when I go out there. And, you know, all of my friends had said, yeah, but even if you do, you're – you built this car yourself, you're driving it, you shipped it across the world, and you're here, you're doing it, like, it doesn't matter, like, that's victory enough, and in a sense that is, I mean, I wish I could say that I would have been happy either way, and I don't think that's the case, I even left saying, man, I wanted to go faster, and I I only got to do three of the sessions at the track, uh, four in total, including one practice session that went well, we had issues in our other two, so four total sessions on that track, which I think I did a cumulative, let's say maybe 10 to 12 laps in their entirety. So very limited amount of time on track. And at this rate, I've also driven the car more in Australia than I did stateside. So very limited seat time at all. And so I'm still happy. Go ahead.
0: I was gonna say, speaking of seat time out in Australia, I want to talk about that journey. Um, How was the decision made to go to Australia? You're just talking to Haltech and they're just like, Hey man, let you want to just bring this thing on over. And I mean, that must've just been insane. Just the opportunity to be able to do that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I got the phone call from the guys at Haltech and uh, Richard had said, Hey, what do you think about coming over here to Australia with your car and running in world time attack challenge? And immediately I said, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to turn down this opportunity. You don't, I might never do anything that cool again. If I peaked here, that would be okay. Um, and so it's, you know, you're not going to turn it down. You're not going to miss the opportunity. With that said, at that time, the most the car had driven was its own way into the hall at SEMA. Um, so that's a long way from turning laps and being able so to. So this is
0: before you even did any like testing out on track. This oh, is before well, well, that this stuff.
2: Is. The only oh, time man. the car had driven whatsoever was it's under its own power into SEMA and then some dyno time. And that was it. So it how was that
0: pressure. I mean, that's that's a lot of weight right there, that phone call, it's, hanging it up and going, oh, boy.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it was the type of thing where I knew that if I was focused, I would have enough time to get the car in some state to do laps in Australia. And I called Ian, who runs World Time Attack, and this was a few weeks before I loaded the car into a container. And I said, hey, I got to have a heart-to-heart with you. I'm going to ship this car over there. And it will turn laps, but this will be a test session 8,000 miles from home. This is not a competitive set of laps. I have driven the car maybe 30 minutes total of seat time. Like, the car is completely untested in any traditional sense. And he said, I don't care. Bring it over. This is going to be the most (laughs) most fun you've ever had. And so that at that moment was like, all right, we're in it to win it. Let's do this. And the car definitely exceeded my own expectations because at that point I had not even turned a test lap. Um, I wasn't even sure that we'd get the chance to do that before leaving the country. So thankfully we got the car out. We did one half day at Buttonwillow and one half day uh, at Willow Springs on horse, horse thief mile. So You know, I knew that the car would be able to turn laps, would be able to, you know, be driven under boost. I'd be able to load it up and get some heat in the tires. And so my thought process was, hey, as long as I can go out and like turn some laps with some semblance of speed, not just out there putting around, uh, I would be happy. And so we went out there, we exceeded those, you know, own milestones and expectations I mean, the car really went out there, and it did. It did, I think, really well. It, it it felt really good. I was feeling more and more confident with every session. The fact that I didn't even have the slowest time in our class, let alone throughout the entire thing, um, and. Everyone that's super else. encouraging, though. Yeah. I mean, being I mean,
0: like, hey, I'm not in last place. This car yeah. is great.
2: So, and, and that's against guys who have driven that track who knows how many times before and who have driven their cars plenty of times. Um, I said immediately, as soon as we got done with the weekend, I'm coming back next year, uh, and I'm going to have a full year to develop this car, and we're going to come back, and we're going to go a hell of a lot faster. We're going to really show what this car can do. And make no mistake, I'm not going to go out there, I'm not going to win, I'm not going to podium. The guys that are competing in the open class are doing times that are absolutely mental. The dedication that some of those people there in that competition have for specifically that competition is absolutely ludicrous. They're spending, some of those guys are spending millions of dollars on those cars.
0: Jeez,
2: Some of the guys um, in the pit right next to us, they were running an Evo and I think over the last few years in the open class they had i think maybe two first place finishes a second and a third and the level at which they were spending just to stay there and compete throughout that weekend was unlike anything i've seen in a like grassroots level motorsport did they give you any
0: advice those guys um Did you learn anything from them?
2: I don't know that they gave me advice so much as the confidence to just push through and do whatever it took to get the car back on track. Um, Their failures over the weekend, I think first they had a tire blowout in turn one, which if you're not familiar with that track, that turn one... Talk to anybody about it. It's the gnarliest turn at anything I've ever seen. It is, in the right car, a flat-out turn. The RP968, which is the current record holder at that track, takes that turn flat-out at 220 miles an hour, just for reference. I mean, it is a turn that separates the boys from the men, if you will. Sorry, ladies. Um, (laughs) Gnarly, gnarly turn. And they had a tire blowout in that turn. It took out all of the arrow on the side of the car, took out the arrow at the front of the car because it went off track, It blew up so hard and went off track that it shifted the subframe within the car, so all the suspension had to be replaced. But they pulled it in. They pulled all the aero off the car. They immediately sent it out and had their composites guys on it repairing all of the aero overnight. They tore the whole tail end of the car down and rebuilt the whole thing there in the pit, only to blow a motor, so (laughs) they pulled the engine out and rebuilt the engine from the ground up to get it back into competition on Saturday, I mean, the level of dedication and the spin, i mean, this was no question a six-figure weekend for these guys, and they yep. were all into it. And so, yeah,
0: so you had your own kind of—you had your own failures, obviously. We've—we've—we've we've, we've yes. seen it on. Well, some people that listen probably don't know, but what kind of challenges did you run into on the weekend? Uh,
2: so, <laughs> when we besides left,
0: the besides the transmission, like, what? Let's start with some of the smaller okay. ones. What were some of the smaller challenges that you that you had?
2: smaller challenges i mean honestly the car felt amazing otherwise all weekend we really only had the only other issue that kind of reared its head was we realized uh relatively quickly that if the fuel cell isn't full when we go out that it burns fuel at such a rate that by the time i've been out there for a few laps there's not enough fuel in the tank to keep it from uh starving under high g's so i need some sort of fuel surge setup in the car to prevent that so we can get basically a full 15 minute session in out of a 10 gallon tank um we had it thankfully so the haltech computer in this thing has every failsafe under the sun if it senses a lean condition for more than i don't know what amount of time it's they have it all set up for me i don't need to know yep. If it senses a lean condition, it immediately jumps into limp mode, limits it to 5,000 RPM and low boost, uh, and lets me get back to the pit so we can figure out what the issue is. Um, and that's exactly what it did when we were starving for fuel. And so, of course, the immediate fear is like, oh, no, what if we've got some sort of tuning issue? What if we're yeah. not having enough fuel in it? What have you? But, nope, it's just fuel starvation because we're you know pulling good G's and we didn't have a full tank when we went out.
0: Are yeah. you able to measure fuel? Does it keep track of fuel pressure and everything? So it's, oh, yeah. So it's, I mean, it's like, oh, there's a drop of fuel pressure right here.
2: Yeah, I mean, it keeps track got of it. literally everything. Every sensor that we could plug into it, it will read, it will data log, and it will feed back to us and tell us exactly what's going on. Um, and thankfully, uh, Scott at Haltech, who is a master tuner, was willing to keep a close eye on the car for us all weekend, help with every possible tuning and data issue that we encountered in terms of like, hey, I want to know this. Can you tell me what the car is doing? No problem. Oh, hey, I want to keep an eye on that. No problem. As soon as we'd come in, he'd pull data off the car, take a look at it, and give us a thumbs up. Hey, everything looks really good. car is really happy. Keep going. Um, I mean, it was...
0: How good is this software compared to stuff i like my experience with standalone and what always scared up me about it so much was i had some experience with some generic stuff that isn't these companies aren't even in business anymore and like mega squirt and trying to tune throttle bodies with alpha and back in the day and i'm sitting there with tables in, in my driveway like, how much different is it than some of the older stuff that people are used to dealing with?
2: So I, I will say this. I do, in total transparency, have to like admit that Haltech is a sponsor of mine, and they did ship the car to Australia. So like, yep. let's get bias out of the way. I, I need to be transparent in that. Sure. Um, but with that said, I do have experience with other standalone systems. I had a life racing system on Rusty, if you remember that. And life racing is a really high-end, top-tier level standalone system. I mean, you're gonna find that if on cars if you go to Le Mans, it's really good stuff. But it is exactly what you fear out of a standalone system. Could I ever look at any of the information coming out of that? No, I, I was afraid to even touch the thing, um, right. and it required a lot of help to get it up and going. And you know, I had to talk to specific people just to get things updated and tuned and what have you. The beauty of Haltech is that we're talking about an enthusiast-driven company. I mean, everybody in that company is all about the cars that these ECUs are in, right? I mean, you go to the Haltech office in Australia, you're going to see a parking lot full of cool stuff. Um, And on top of that, you're talking about a company with just massive aftermarket support with tuners all over the U.S. or abroad. It doesn't matter where you are. You're going to be able to find Guys that know how to run this software to do diagnostics to help you if you encounter a problem, and that was one of the most important aspects of choosing an ECU sponsor for the Ferrari. I had pretty much every company that I can right. name, short of Motech, saying, Hey, we'll, we want to sponsor the project, we want to be involved. And I did choose Haltech because of those factors the support I knew I would get, the fact that if I encountered issues trying to make this admittedly somewhat bizarre car work to make all these systems work together. I didn't want to be stuck and funneled through a single guy. That's a United States rep for some esoteric device. Right. I want to know that any problem I'm going to be encountering is, has either been solved already or they're going to be down to tackle it. And that was what solidified me going with Haltech to begin with. Now to answer that question of what is it really like to use, it blows my mind how capable this, so in the Ferrari you have a Nexus R5, it is an ECU and PDM in one, and PDM is a power distribution module, that means this car does not have a fuse box, it doesn't have uh, like traditional circuit breakers, it doesn't have anything like that. All of the stuff in the car is powered through the ECU including the water pumps, including the fans. It is capable of distributing high amperage power to right. anything in the car, fuel pumps, what have you. So it can do you know, pulse width modulation on anything in the car. You can have the ECU parameters talk to any other accessory within the car. It basically creates a network of everything in the car, makes it all able to communicate with each other and able to Um, essentially interface with each other. So even if you wanted to do something as bizarre as I want my headlights to come on at a certain speed, it can do it. It doesn't (laughs) matter. Uh, you can do much more logical things like, Hey, if you see, um, I mean, it has things like traction control built into it. It's so, and and so it's going to do that with our drive by wire throttle body. Uh, we right. can integrate our wheel speed sensors into it and have all of that stuff already figured out or cruise control. It doesn't have a problem with it because it can it can manage everything, whether it's engine related or otherwise, we can have it. yeah, because I'm
0: struggling with like you know, I'm struggling with my with my 911 and all the carburetor stuff that I've had going on. and I my my greatest fear is like that I'm always going to have to have a laptop on my passenger seat. And I'm always going to be fiddling with it. And it's always going to be a problem. And I'm never going to be like dialed in entirely. And then I go, wow, that's pretty much exactly the definition of everything that I've been doing with these carburetors is it's never dialed in. I'm always fucking with it. It's never right. So I'm trying to like figure out in my mind if I should transition to something like that or not. If I will, be a- will I be able to get it to be good enough that I don't have to worry about it or think about it ever again? Because that's kind of the point where I'm at, is like, I don't want to fuck with it anymore. I just want to do other things.
2: Well, the upshot to a system like this Haltech system is not only is it immensely capable, I mean, this is a race-grade piece of hardware and software, which also, to be clear, is built completely in-house from the circuit boards to the code that is on it, the software that you use. I got to see them doing all of it, coding it upstairs while soldering boards downstairs. Incredible and the fact that it's all done in one place under one system of control gave me a lot of confidence. Um, That system, it's race-grade, but it's street-friendly. I mean, you can just put a normal car on this, you can get it up and running, it will work, it can tell you everything that's wrong when you have an issue. issue. You're not just going to be sitting there, oh, what's wrong this time? It's not like dealing Mm. with you know, let's just say a, an S50 swapped E30 or Mercedes in this case where <laughs> it might be able to tell you a few things, but you're still going to have to dive in and figure out what that issue is when you have one. But I can just plug in or Wi-Fi to my laptop and it'll tell me exactly what's going on if it does. So why be-
0: don't I swap to that on the S50 and the Mercedes? It sounds like it almost would be easier than the OBD1 stuff.
2: You should. It would okay. be it would be great if you got the budget for it. There's there's no question. It's it's absolutely the way to go. And Last but not least is this software is capable of learning. It will make adjustments on the fly. When I asked um, Scott at Haltech, I said, hey, there's one variable here. I don't have sensors set up on my charge air intake efficiency. I don't know what the pre and post temperatures of my air intake and charge temps are. Or right. with respect to how efficient is my water-to-air intercooler? I don't know that I, for example, have all of the air bled out of it. You know, Who knows? And he said, it doesn't matter. If it sees increasing intake air temps, it's just going to adjust its fuel tables. You don't need to even think about that.
0: And here I was
2: panicking about like, oh, I need to laser focus on my IATs so I don't melt something here. No, he said, it doesn't matter. Like, you don't need to be thinking about stuff like that. Same thing with coolant temps. He was like, dude, if it gets too hot, it's going to immediately shut itself down and start cooling itself, even to the point of it has a mode called rotational idle, where it will uh, use fuel to cool cylinders and miss and cycle which cylinder is missing to bring temps down. I mean, it's just incredible stuff. It is absolutely what i'm gonna all the time
0: time in the world to worry about if your heim joints are gonna fall off or not you don't have to worry
2: yeah i can worry (laughs) a lot more about what i did and not about the engine and the engine did perfectly all weekend the haltech guys were thrilled with how well it ran uh it didn't skip a beat and i didn't have to think about it i didn't have to sweat whatsoever about am i gonna hurt my engine this weekend
0: so the engine was fine other things maybe maybe not so much so talk about like what's What's uh what happened on the lap when your transmission failed? Can you just kind of talk me through like what that was like and what you experienced?
2: You mean the first lap of the competition on my out lap? <laughs> uh, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> no we, so we had so a bit of a schedule um, we had thir- the event is Thursdays practice day and then the main event is Friday and Saturday. Uh, each day we get three sessions out on track. They're 15-minute sessions including your out and cool down laps. So That's a lot of
0: time, honestly.
2: It like, it doesn't feel th- like it. You get you get if, if the car can stay out there and do it, some of these guys run one lap and that's it. I mean, they burn through okay. a full set of tires in a single lap. Um, Jesus. My car n- does not. But you're talking about, you know, including an out lap and your cool-down lap to bring it in, you might get four, maybe five laps, give or take. I think some guys turn six. Okay. Um, we had first session on pr- for practice Thursday morning, car did fine. We didn't have any issues. I was out there going real slow, just re-familiarizing myself with the car. I had joked that session one is just practice for session two. So that part was fine. Session two, we had our first lean condition. That's when we realized, you know, once I started leaning on the car more, we were starving it for fuel. I came in, that was on like my first lap. We came in, we didn't solve what the issue was before the session ended. There's just not enough time to download data and confirm what the issue is before going back out. Final session of Thursday, I came in, I think, on my second lap because the transmission began to shift itself from second to third. Now, it's a sequential gearbox, and it's set up to do flat shifting, which means that as soon as I put load on the load cell shift knob, it will cut throttle and spark very momentarily, and then as I'm pulling Wait, on so it... so there's it, a
0: sensor on the shift that, that senses that you're touching it? It senses and knows. that you
2: are touching the shift knob, so you don't drive this car with a hand resting on the shift knob. That <laughs> will confuse not. it. You sh- touch it only to shift it, um, and you'll find that most sequential gearboxes will have this same type of shift knob. It's unfortunately the most expensive shift knob I've ever seen. Um, but yeah, it has a load cell in it. It can tell when you're pulling on it and when you're pushing on it for downshifting. If you have... Uh, basically like rev match downshifting setup i yeah. do not I, I still heel toe and clutch it you don't have to but i'm doing that for longevity but in short i wasn't even getting my hand to the shifter before it would just pop from second to third under load and that happened two times in one lap and so i decided I i gotta come in i don't know what's going on here so I came in, and that was... Are you was, thinking
0: it's like a faulty shift knob? I mean, that would be... No, know, my, I,
2: like, I, at first I thought, but then I realized there's nothing to actually make it shift. It would just cut throttle and spark, but it wouldn't shift itself. So I realized pretty quickly we've got some sort of issue likely related to uh, the dogs being rounded off, the engagement for the gears uh, not interfacing completely and correctly. Very common problem on these things. This is not unexpected, if you will could have been a result of, I mean, who knows what, it, it may have been user error, it could be because we were shifting it, not flat shift set up before, just basically lift to shift uh, during all of our testing, I don't know, I don't know what caused the issue, Gearbox is still basically new, it's unfortunate that it happened, when I came in, we talked with everybody, kind of decided what it could be, what it could not be, we looked at the data, it was very clearly not, the shift knob or the load cell causing this issue. Um, Everything else looked really good. We said this is definitely an internal problem within the gearbox. The best solution we could come up with was to change our fluid, fill it up. It was a little bit low, and we found out that everybody runs these things over full by 50%. Instead of two quarts, they run three in them. So we weren't doing that. And then we also found out we... um, had we didn't have a breather set up on it at the time so we installed a breather so we wouldn't have like any issues in that respect just simple stuff like that um and said hey worst case scenario i mean the gearbox seems okay it's just shifting itself maybe i will drive through it it will shift from second to third early maybe i fall out of boost maybe i'm going slower out there but we'll just we'll just drive through it we just need to do the laps um and we called it a night and then the first lap at the, on the outlap of Friday morning competition, uh, is when exactly when it had been doing it before, basically going up the hill, uh, it shifted itself. And this time when it shifted, it just blew the gear up. I mean, there was no second gear free spinning. It sounded like a bag of marbles inside the transmission. It was really hesitant to shift into third or first, very clear that this thing just shit the bed. So I limped it back around to the pit, uh as to not
0: how'd you feel i mean were you like my weekend's over fuck this. i was oh man
2: i was bummed because i had it, we probably even have video of it i don't know i think i am on video beforehand saying i am fine with anything breaking other than the transmission it is the <laughs> one thing i didn't want to break because that transmission costs more than a thousand horsepower race engine i mean yeah it's also i knew that if i blew an engine up I could find someone with even a stock K24. We could bolt it in there and at least still turn laps. But if I blew up a sequential gearbox in Australia, I'm probably not going to find a replacement. And so I was pretty heartbroken pulling back around into the pit on lap one of competition before even the crowds that had said, oh, we're coming to see this thing go, even got to see it go. I mean, I felt like I was going to disappoint not only myself and my friends that were there to help me, um, but anybody that wanted to see this car do what it came there to do, it it felt like a failure. And it was the one thing I just didn't want to happen. I wasn't prepared for. Um, I mean our entire spares package that we took with us as far as spare parts go came in a carry on, uh, on the plane (laughs) with me. So, I mean, you know, any illusions of like, Oh, this is a professional race team or what have you like, no, it's not the case. You know, we're just guys chasing a, a, passion project here, but Transmission blew up. We pulled in, and I knew immediately, like, hey, we're done. This is not the car is not going back out. And because it's a sequential gearbox, it's not like you can shift from first to third. You know, it's not like we we're oh we're down a gear, we can make it work otherwise. Like you'd have to shift through second to get to third. I guess you could like maybe do it with a clutch, but it's also it's full of gear teeth. It sounded like yeah. it was about to come apart. it was, it was done. Was uh, there anything
0: in the gear oil from the other time when you changed it, or was it one of those things where it's like oh, there's a little bit in here. Maybe it's just because it was new and it's wearing in. There was
2: nothing unexpected in the gearbox. No, uh, nothing outside of like the very normal, extremely faint kind of glitter you'd expect from a new gearbox, you know, in that break-in period. Um, Along with the differential and what have you. So nothing unexpected. It looked fine. Um, And yeah, so we pulled in and I thought we were done. And I even, you know, some of my buddies were saying, hey, you know, don't let it eat you up. You still made it. You still did laps yesterday. Um, No one's going to be disappointed in you for that. Like, this is still a victory. You have your car in Australia at Sydney Motorsport Park and you turn laps. Like,
0: Did you feel that way, too? Or was it?
2: I was trying to convince myself that that was enough. Um, But, I mean, it wasn't, right? You know? And... So I, I talked to my dad for a moment who came along on the trip, um, and he was just kind of saying, like, hey, I support whatever way you want to do. If you want to park this back in the Haltech booth and enjoy the rest of the weekend and watch the racing, like, I think you did a great job. If you if you want to thrash, let me know how I can help, and, you know, we'll, we'll try to replace it. Um, and this was prior to even finding a gearbox. You know, that wasn't – we couldn't put just, like, a normal six-speed in the car. It doesn't have any provisions for something like that, but – even if we, so could, that's what right? I was
0: thinking is just like, let's go find an Australian junkyard and put a manual transmission in there. And
2: no, there's no, there's no provision for anything like that. I mean, the sequential gearbox uses a single cable shifter, uh, on a very specific mount. So, I mean,
0: so you had no hydraulic lines, no cables, not there's no, nothing there. No, for you're not going to, yeah, you're yeah. not going to
2: swap right. it over to a six speed car like that. Um, I mean, it's something maybe I could future proof, but Hey, I have two transmissions now, so I'm, I don't have to worry about it, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Yeah. So in short, I mean, I did that. I, I talked to my dad for a minute. I, I wound up, I actually called a mirror and I said, Hey, like you have been in these sh- shoes before. What do you think? And even he was like, Hey, like there's nothing wrong with being done right now, but well, you know, if you can find one, go for it. And then, uh, and then last but not least, uh, I'm a mama's boy. I called my mom and, uh, you know, just kind of like said, Hey, am I being an, am I being an idiot here?" I need like a level head that's not here that's going to tell me like hey you're <laughs> this is not a smart choice because I said hey I'm about to you know put this very expensive transmission on my credit card uh, like what's the parental advice here. That's not my dad's yeah, Cause you're here. basically
0: in a crack house of automotive enthusiasts, right? They're all like, yeah, yeah they're they're all, everybody's going
2: tricking... to feed me the bad, <laughs> bad advice. Uh, so like how much of a bad decision is it to put, um, you know, a, a five digit transmission on a credit card for, yeah. you know, one day of racing, you know, am I thinking with heart overhead here? And of course my mom was like, at this point we had word that we might have found a transmission and my mom said, You found a transmission. You have to do it. Like you better mm-hmm. do it. <laughs> I'm why wi- I'm staying up till two AM watching this live stream. You better do it. So at that moment I walked back over to the pit and all the guys were standing there, all of my friends that came along and uh the tune had changed a bit and it was funny, you know. Initially it was it was Byron who had kind of given me the hey, it's not worth spending ten or fifteen thousand dollars to fix your car to do 20 minutes of driving tomorrow it's not worth it you can fix your transmission when you get home for a couple grand this it, it doesn't make sense to do this and when i walk back i don't know what caused the shift or what caused the change but he he smiled and he said do you want a story with a sad ending or do you want do you want a story that is absolutely fucking sick? And I said, no, I want the story. I want to do this. And everybody said, all right, we're in, let us know what comes next. And so the guys at JDM yard, essentially spoon Australia had the exact same gearbox at their shop. It was a spare for one of the spoon race cars. Um, it literally is the same down to the gear ratios. The only difference being it was a clutch type differential instead of a helical. Um, but that wasn't a big deal. They even had a helical differential if I wanted to swap it over. And I said, no, I'm not going to open this thing up and deal with that. Let's just put it in the car. So they said, hey, you know, if you buy, basically give us what we paid for it, it's yours, Um, which was unbelievably supportive of them to do. So we did did that. And then everybody else started coming together. Uh, We met a guy who was willing to have an engine gantry hoist delivered to the track so we could get the engine out of the car because a normal cherry picker is pretty hard to use on this thing. Um. We had all the guys from Haltech, you know, bring their tools out. I mean, it was just, uh, it was unlike anything I've experienced in terms of the level of camaraderie and support everybody had. Everybody's like, oh, let's, you know, let us know what errands we need to run you know let us know what tools we need we started putting together lists we needed parts we needed fluids we needed this we needed that and just everybody kind of divided and conquered uh and you know within a few hours we had everything sitting there ready to go we kind of agreed hey let's line everything up let's have a full game plan let's talk about this before we just start ripping it apart because in order to replace the transmission on that car the engine has to come out as well as every other component in the engine bay the engine is the first thing to go in And the last thing to come out, including all of the dry sump, you know, tank and hosing, the manifold, the turbo, the exhaust. I mean, everything has to come out. The entire intercooler system, all of it. So we had a game plan and then we just kind of went for it. Um, And it thankfully went smoothly. I've done this exact job a bunch of times already, for better or worse. So it was only a couple of hours before. I think it was two hours before we had the entire driveline out of the car. Um, And then at that point... I'm, I'm grateful for it. So I don't know who it was. I think it was Justin, but me, one of the guys in the group basically said, Hey, you still have rubber engine mounts in this car. And that's not necessarily a problem, but they are a remnant of, I mean, it's one of the first things I did on the car was to build engine mounts to start this engine swap. And that was when I wanted the car to be a street car. Um, so we're talking about, a, you know, a 640 wheel horsepower race car, you know out there trying to do what it's doing with rubber engine mounts and the engine's moving around plenty it's shearing exhaust mounts pretty regularly so on and so forth so he said let's see if we can find somebody with a lathe to make us aluminum engine mounts while we have this apart and i'm so busy focused on like trying to get transmission stuff solved i was just like whatever yeah go for it i don't care and uh one of the guys we had met Mo had said, hey, I know some of the guys over at HyperTune, which for anybody not familiar, really high end billet parts for, um, you know, things like GTRs and what have you. They're an Australian company. He said, I know some of the guys over there. I bet they'll make us some parts. And so uh, one of their guys, Overtime Fab on Instagram, lived true to his name. He came in at, I don't know, 8 or 9 p.m. On a Friday night, and then machined us custom aluminum engine mounts to put this engine back in the car (laughs) with, you know, solid mounts. Uh, So they were over there doing that. It led to a little bit more downtime than I would have liked. I found I, you know, I was sitting in the pit with, uh, with our buddy Wade. It was just the two of us there. Everybody else had left to go over to Hypertune, and yeah, we actually had like a couple hours of downtime just waiting for everybody to come back. I was getting a little bit peeved because it's like, man, I could have the engine back in the car and call this a night, but hopefully this will be worth it and it was it was i'm very stoked that that overtime fab and hyper tune were willing to uh you know make those parts for us and help us get the car back on track and better than it was before um and so yeah they showed back up i don't know maybe 10 o'clock or something and then we thrashed to get the car back together and hit one final potentially huge issue uh we got the engine and driveline back in most of the stuff hooked backed up and We realized when we went to hook up the clutch hydraulics that one of the slave lines coming out of the transmission, which in order to get to it, everything would have to come back out. One of those AN lines had stripped threads, internal threads on it, leaving us unable to hook up the clutch hydraulics. So no clutch, and that car will not work without a clutch. Right. And they also were kicking us out of the track at midnight. We were not able to stay overnight and problem solve and you know fight our way through this. So it was like all right, we gotta go back to our So
0: are people not staying at the track? Is this not because when I think of like all these track events, I think people with like trailers and they're sleeping there and there's dudes out at three o'clock in the morning. That always that seems strange to me that you guys got kicked out.
2: I'm gonna make you edit this part here. We're super overexposed. There we go. No problem. So I was told by some of the guys, hey, it wouldn't have been a problem. You should have been able to stay. Just close the shop doors and they won't kick you out. We did have a guy roll in at 1030 and say, you guys have to be done by 1130. Um, and I thought he was joking at first. I thought this has to be, you know, some form of humor. And I like laughed at him. And then he said, no, I'm, I'm not <laughs> messing with you. You guys have, you know, less than an hour to get out of here. And I was like, are you like, you're serious right now? You can't work with us here. We can't stay. We I've never been to a racetrack where we can't stay overnight on something like this." Yeah. Nope. You guys got to be out. He came back maybe 15 minutes later and said, guys, I'm willing to stay till midnight to his credit. That was kind of him to do. He did not have to do that. Um, and so, you know, could we have gotten away with it? Did that guy leave? As far as I know by midnight, when we left, the only person left was at the front gate. And I have a suspicion there were probably some people still in their own garages working overnight, Um, I like to think that I'm an honest guy and I was told to leave at midnight. So we tidied up and we did leave. Uh, and then we came back before dawn. As soon as they would let us back into the track, we were there to continue. Um, uh, the same fellow who, uh, provided the gantry crane for us, his name is Chad. Um, he texted me at, I think about 3am and he sent me a phone number, uh, to a fellow named Shane at motorsport connections. And he said, call this guy. He's going to, he'll get you sorted. And this is at 3 a.m. So I was like, I probably should not hit him up at 3 a.m. Uh, but around 5 a.m. he texts me again. He says, doesn't matter what time it is. Just hit him up. So I called, called this guy who I didn't know. He sounded a little groggy when he answered the phone. And I explained the situation, how I got his number. Uh, and he said, yeah, no problem. I'll head straight to the track. I'll be right there. I think I can fix this. And so he showed up at the track, uh, and got underneath the car, cut our hydraulic lines, And somehow, I don't know how, fitted new ends to our hydraulic lines in place inside the car where there is no room underneath uh, and got our clutch hydraulics working again, which is incredible. So thank you again to him. And uh, yeah, we got the car back together literally 10 minutes before the first session, our first session of the day, and uh, we fired the car up. Got it warmed up, backed it out, and got to do the first laps of the main main day of competition on Saturday, which was easily one of the most rewarding moments of my entire career.
0: Yeah, I can see it from the smile on your face. Um, I think we'll. Uh, I'm sure you're going to have an episode about talking about this. So I'm going to. I'm going to save how that felt for your episode. I want people to watch it and I want them to to uh, to, to get that from from you there, dude. So what what's what's next, man? Like, are you taking this car all apart are you gonna kind of leave it as is for a little bit and see if you can get the most out of it as is or or what what's the scoop
2: um so well step one is get the car back to the u.s so we loaded it into a container on sunday immediately after competition um and it's supposed to be back sometime mid-november i'm bummed because i think it will barely miss
0: Man, that is a slow boat.
2: Yeah, it takes two months, (laughs) two months. And I think we will miss getting the car to GTA Finals at Buttonwillow, which, again, it wouldn't be competitive at, but I would love to go out there and just participate. I think we'll probably miss it, if I had to guess, probably a week. Um, But once the car gets back, uh, it's a matter of starting to make revisions. I have a whole list of things that I want to do to it, things that I know I can improve, um, and I want to get the car revised i want to get a lot of testing time in and i want to get it at least as you know sorted as i can by march for circuit of the america's global time attack has what they call super lap battle it's kind of their main event the biggest time attack event stateside every year uh at what is i would assume america's you know premier motorsports facility so i want to take the car there in march uh, hence making sure I want to have uh, a way to tow it there. And I need some money yeah. to make sure that it's ready. Uh, you know, circling back. How,
0: how does this affect the channel? Cause you have a lot of other projects going on and it sounds like this thing is going to become kind of like an anchor point. Like it's always there. You're always going to be working out leads in the near, near term. Are you still going to have time for like the E30 and the Audi and, and the yeah. you know, model A and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, I think you still have that desire.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think that's always been part of the, format of the channel is the, the Ferrari is the reason most people watch. I'm really lucky that when I shift gears and I do something like the Audi or E30 or Model A, I still get great reviews and interaction. It, it, I don't see a deficit from it. Um, and so I'm, I'm very, very fortunate with that. It'd be pretty easy for me to show a different vehicle and people just say, I don't want to watch that. Um, so the, the Ferrari will still be a primary point of content. I don't know that it will be as often as it has, it has been because there's less to get done on it, but hopefully in place of the working on it means more driving it more time at the track, more time making content where we're doing what this car was meant to do. And I hope that people are eager to see the process of going out and trying to shave, you know, at first full seconds and then start shaving tents and then shaving hundreds really dialing in the car and my own process and journey of learning how to do that uh down to the finest details because that's you know everybody yeah i think that's on. in
0: the spirit of the channel for sure um that journey will will fit right in and i think people will love that so what car are you bringing on the rally it was going to be the audi but i, I feel like it's not going to be the audi because there's just not enough time yeah, what's the what's the plan i'm a
2: bit broken-hearted i really wanted to take the audi on the trip uh, and I realized once the Ferrari left, cause I think initially when we said, yeah, let's take the Audi, there was no Australia trip at all. That was not on right. the table. Um, once Australia became an opportunity, I, you know, I said, there's no way I'm going to miss this. I, and it was the perfect kick in the ass to make sure the car didn't sit around and take, let's say till this point, or maybe even later before it ever even turned its first test lap or test drive down the street. So it was a good thing, but As a result, once the Ferrari left, I kind of looked at the time available and I realized I could get the Audi done. It's definitely doable, but I'd kill myself to do it. And I've been killing myself to get the Ferrari done. And I realized like, that's not the best thing for me or for like (laughs) my relationship with my girlfriend. Like, I don't need to put her through that either. Let's catch our breath a little bit. Um, You know, I want to spend time with friends and what have you as well. I think those, you know, breaths of fresh air are important. So I said, hey, pump the brakes a little bit. The Audi will be done when it's done. And thankfully, uh, kind of in that same time frame, my buddy Blake decided to S54 swap his E36, which meant an S52 became available. So I said, hey, let's S52 swap my E30, my tribute build, if you will, to my late friend Corey Um and have an awesome road trip car with this thing. I mean, you know me. I'm a BMW guy. This is exactly yeah. what I want to be driving anyway. So we're going to have a very fresh build. It's a full S52-swapped E30. We're going to redo all of the suspension on this thing before we go. Um, we're doing a manual swap on it. We'll have new wheels, new tires. I mean, the, the whole car, it'll be you know, redone. It'll be a really sweet little project. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited And you And
0: you guys know that stuff. You'll be able to knock that out in the next, yeah. the next few weeks no for sure. No problem at all. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to, you mentioned Corey and I met Corey one time, one time when I came out and visited you and I saw his picture on the Ferrari in the engine compartment where you're working on it (laughs) in, in Australia. And I saw it on the dash and I heard the announcer and say, it's fine. It's fine. So you must've mentioned it to him. And uh, when Alex and I were there, we left and I, and I had the dude, it's fine thing was like, we talked about that all the way home. The frickin' nine eleven broke down. It's like, dude, it's fine. And I just wanted to ask, what's the inception of It's Fine, and, and what did that mean to Corey, and what does it mean to you?
2: You know, I don't necessarily know where Dude, It's Fine came from, but it's – I think initially it started as a joke where it was this thing uh, kind of our just closest circle of friends would say when – Stuff was definitely not fine, uh, but you'd brush it off. Dude, it's fine. <laughs> or maybe you were skeptical about doing something. Maybe something was scary to do. You know, whatever. You know, Corey moving from California back to Tennessee. Dude, it's fine. It'll be fine. Or, you know, what have you. It doesn't matter what it is. Maybe you wreck your car. He, You know, he rear-ended a car in traffic in his M3. Dude, it's fine. It, it, that's all there is to it. Um, and I think that it took on a new meaning when Corey passed away was, you know, that was the first thing anybody said. It was like, Hey dude, it's fine. You know, you try to, you know, just churn your way through those emotions of losing, you know, one of your best friends and you'd be fine. And I think we have all taken that saying further and further as time goes on. Um, and so when we blew the transmission up, dude, it's fine. And then, our buddy oxy brought a handful of photos of Corey. one to put on the dash of the car and he took another one of Corey cutting i don't know what it was cutting something apart under the hood of a car with an angle grinder uh and he wrote dude it's fine on it and just stuck it to the back windshield of the ferrari while we were working on it to remind us of like hey whatever happens here maybe we don't even get the car back together but dude it's fine and i didn't even say anything to the announcers nobody did i think when they were you know, running their camera and kind of doing their B-roll or what have you and zoomed in on it. One of the announcers saw the Dude It's Fine text on there and said it on their own accord. And that was just, it was awesome to hear them say that. I think they even said it a few times. Dude, yeah, dude, it's fine. And they immediately understood what it was about um, and embraced the very spirit of what that saying is meant to be is just, dude, it's fine.
0: Mike, thanks for coming to hang out again. I look forward to seeing you on the rally. We'll see you in uh, in Oregon. Yeah, just in the E thirty in the white E thirty with the other white E thirty and the other oh yeah the white E thirty fan. And
2: if uh, if things work out, maybe depending, we might bring Corey's car on the rally too. So I might be behind the wheel of that with uh, with my tribute car in tow. We'll see. Either way, we'll have one or two or a few E thirties with us. It'll be fun. It's only a few weeks away, so yeah, I've got to get to uh, I got to get to work on this engine swap, now.
0: All right, man. Take care, buddy. We'll see you next time.
2: All right. We'll see you.